This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Hello and welcome to the TriTac Podcast, your podcast for riding high in the saddle and pulling your six-shooter when you need to. That's right, folks. This week we're talking westerns. We decided that we were going to do westerns this week because, well, we haven't covered that one yet. Somehow it has slipped through. That's right, partners. We haven't done it yet. Yeah, we've, we've done cavemen, we've done dinosaurs, we've done pirates, but somehow we missed cowboys and engines. Them varmints yep. slipped through like a grease pig. <laughs> so, on this episode, uh, it, it hey, and if, did you notice? It's the original three. Um, Trav is busy this week, Paul is busy this week, uh, Amber's still MIA, and... Uh, uh, Jay is wherever Jay is. Jay is wherever Jay is. <laughs> Jay, Jay, we miss you. We, we miss all you guys. We miss you, buddy. Anyway, so we're going to talk about westerns this week, and we're gonna we're gonna touch on um, everything that uh, TriTac has to offer in the way of gaming for um, for western type adventures. Uh, but first, uh, uh, we, we spent a little time talking about this bef- uh, pre-show. John, when is Western? When when does that take place? And where does it take place? What are we talking about tonight? If you're talking like the literature and the movie Western, it's a time period from the 1860s to either 1900 or 1910. I mean, it's it's basically a period of 40 to 50 years. Fairly short time period, even though it does occupy a large in our in our culture and in, in our mythos. Right, but and of course it takes place in the American West. Of course, that that definition is anything. I think anything west of the Mississippi. Right. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> but I mean, it could. I mean, you could stretch that. Though. I mean, everything we talk about tonight is going to have some, you know, some elasticity on, on its boundaries. Like for example, yeah, John, you mentioned 1860, uh, but you could conceivably play something that would that would play just like a Western and feel very Western all the way back. How far do we say 1800 roughly? Cause yeah, that's when yeah. Zorro takes place. So, so you could still play back further. That's just not your typical, uh, genre Western, but it's, it's easy enough to, to extend back that far. And we'll get into a little bit of why it's not going to feel as Western if you go back that far. Um, and then we have one example, or I have one example. It's one I like, uh, I have one example where the Western stretches all the way up to 1931, and it's basically I, I can say I'm pushing it on that one, but I feel like it still qualifies as as a Western. But like I was telling these guys, I was like, one day after that movie's over, the Wild West is done. Um, th- that that's the movie that that basically Bruce Willis shoots the Western to death. Uh, 
but but there's reasons for this and, and we'll we'll go into it has to do with, you know, feel and technology and, and capabilities and you know, all that kind of stuff. When you go back to say eighteen sixty, in eighteen sixty, which states do not exist yet? Hold on. Uh, South Dakota is not a state yet. Wyoming, Utah, Oklahoma, Arizona, and New Mexico, none of those are states yet. As a matter of fact, I'm going to see how far back that goes. 1860. So Kansas becomes a state in 1861, followed by West Virginia, then Nevada, then Nebraska, then Colorado. So there's a good chunk of states that are not states yet. They're still territories. Of course, West Virginia is still Virginia. Yes, you're, you're right. You're right, Bruce. West Virginia is part of Virginia. Okay, now I forgot the name of the act. It was the act where they basically state so many slave territories and so many free territories. Right, right. There, there's, there's an act. It was the name of an act. Of course, now I can't remember the name of the act. It became very political. So right around the time of the Civil War, a lot of these you see a lot of states popping up because as the North grabs a state, the South demands that a territory becomes a state. So there was there was um, a lot of of political happenings because if you if you watch these you know you'll see a state in in uh, 1860 and then one in 1861 and if you look at it one of them's a slave state and one of them's not and and they kind of go in pairs like that uh and then what was a bloody kansas was that the um the event that was sort of the the tipping point for all that kind of stuff yeah i think so because they were they were trying to see if, if kansas was going to be a um a slave state and i think it was i think that was it but anyway, it, that's not important. Let's not get too political on this. But at any rate, that's when a lot of this is going on. So if you want to play during the Civil War, that's definitely still can qualify pretty easily as Wild West. But, you know, you got a little war going on. So. The war is going on, but it's really going on in the main southern states. I mean, right. there were some conflicts as far north as, as New as far as north, I think, is Michigan. Uh, but basically, when you get to the west, a lot of a lot of the territories were just sitting back watching Sioux go come on top. Right, because some of those some of those would be affiliated with the north or the south end of things, but they didn't really mess with each other too much. Right. Nothing really west of Missouri was involved, as far as I know. Right. Yeah. And if we're wrong, you can correct us. We're not history we're not, you know, we're not history majors or anything like that. But we do play one on television. <laughs> so you have vast stretches of desert and hard pan. And, and mountains and forests and uh, re uh, redwood stands that haven't any idea why uh, gray can't get along with blue. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And this, this is a period of time where you've got guys living out, living out in the woods, trapping beavers and stuff for money, uh, and they, they couldn't give a, a hoot who, who's doing what. They, they just want to sell their beavers and live off the land. And you can also remember during this is the time period when the Transcontinental Railroad was first laid down was right. basically more or less during the Civil War. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. At least it was started then. <laughs> so let's let's go back to the what I would consider I mean as far back as I'm gonna be willing to go and still call it a Western. Uh, and that's Zorro. So we, we figured out Zorro happened somewhere around eighteen hundred. Mm-hmm. There thereabouts, eighteen, I don't know, eighteen oh five, eighteen oh six. It's I'm not really sure, but it's it's right around eighteen hundred. And that's still, to me, that feels Western. You know, that, that doesn't feel like, a, um, you know, what did you say before, John? It was like post-colonial is sort of the era, but it doesn't really feel like that. feel more post-colonial when you get back further east because it's still like, you know, 1830s. There's a lot of places where they're still kind of dressing that transition phase 
from the frock coats to more, you know, uh, co- contemporary style, you know, clothing and so forth. But you still see coonskin hats, hats all over the place. And that definitely is colonial style. Right. Yeah. So, so Daniel Boone, uh, much as he is a, as a Western figure, he was definitely um, post-colonial. It comes right down to it. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, Daniel Boone, definitely. But you still, I mean, you can still play a a Western feel of a game during that time. That brings us up to the Alamo. So Alamo was in eighteen thirty six. Yep. And again, you know, like if you if you watch the movie The Alamo, they look like cowboys to me. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends which which Alamo you watch. I think the the, the more recent Alamo, they decided to be much more contemporary and actually not a contemporary, but um, contemporary to the time period. So there's less Western wear and more, well, what they wore back then. Okay. So, yeah, so you see a lot more buttons ah. and uniforms, stuff like that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, 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 it really very, you know, it, you know, so that's another thing you'll see in Westerns is that Westerns that are made back in the 20s and 30s are much more authentic than the Westerns they were later made in, say, oh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, we've gotten back to where again. Getting back to where we're trying to be more, you know, period correct for our Westerns in terms of what people wear. So then we then we move up to uh, we have Outlaw Josie Wales. Now that to me that is the quintessential West. That's one of my favorite westerns, movie what classic movie westerns, and that takes place in 1865. You know that that feels very very western to me, like that and True Grit. And True Grit is 1873. So there's that, now we're hitting that sweet spot that, um, you know, po- post 1860s. That's where I feel like all the, the Western really happens the way we imagine it. Um, and the movie, what is it? The TV show Deadwood, I believe, 1876. So that's three years after True Grit. So yeah, that's, that's that sweet spot right there. And if you've never watched Deadwood, I highly suggest it to everyone because that was an awesome show. From what I read, from all the stuff I read, it was it was fairly accurate as to how life was. So, was there any reference to the centennial in Deadwood? You know, I didn't see the whole show. Like every episode, um, I saw like the first three seasons. I think two and a half, three. So maybe. It's been a while. Considering yeah. it's the centennial when it starts. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, maybe I. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember. But that's that's a good point. I grew up doing the John Ford westerns, so I remember a lot of those. Most of them starring John Wayne. Um, so I, I, I would have a hard time saying. I would say she wore yellow ribbons when I would consider a uh, my favorite western, because it basically with John Wayne was transitioning from a. A soldier to a um, to a civilian in that movie. He was he was playing a guy who fought during the Civil War, fought the Indians, and now he's becoming a scout. And by God, this guy's going to die out in the range on his horse with his boots on. (laughs) (laughs) And um, another one uh, that I kind of skipped over um, is a movie called Ravenous. You guys ever seen that? Mm -mm. Oh yes. That's a good. That's one of my favorites too. I like that one a lot. That takes place in 1846, hmm. which is about the same time because it's kind of based on the story of the you know what was that family that went west and they wound up uh, living in a cave and eating each other. Donner. Oh, Donner. 
The Donner Party. That movie is based around uh, the Donner Party. Uh, it's not based on it. It's 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 loosely based on a story like that. Yeah. It's that's more of your your uh, weird west. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's getting to the weird west. Huh? You're right. You're absolutely right. Not because of the cannibalism, because of the other aspects that are in the movie, which we'll get to. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Why is it that before 1860, 1860 is when the Henry Rifle comes out. And the Henry Rifle is, uh, as far as I can tell from uh, the interwebs, uh, from, from Wikipedia, it is the second uh, second weapon to use a cased round. The first one was a twenty two short. So uh, in 1857, the 22 short is developed. It's, I think that's the first cartridge round. Uh, and when I say cartridge, I don't mean the paper cartridges. I mean, I mean actual bullets. And a 22 is not going to do a whole. I mean, that's that's not that doesn't have much knockdown power. The 44 Henry, though, that's 1860. That comes out. And and Bruce, you were saying that changes everything, doesn't it? It certainly does because prior to that, when you had any altercations with Indians. Their ability to fire their bows pretty much as quick as they could pull the arrows out into the bow and pull back on the uh, on the string meant that they could riddle uh, a, a, an outpost, an army uh, detachment before those soldiers really even had a chance to reload. So they were constantly having to hole up inside of their forts. And now, once they had the Henry rifle, because they could reload so much quicker because of the true cartridge, all of a sudden that advantage that the Indians had of, of faster shooting was much reduced. And then the greater range of the Henry rifle versus a bow and arrow became the overriding factor. And it really did, did the death knell of the Indian culture because they no longer had the firepower, literally, to... Uh, stand up against the blue coats. You know, this this sets off a, a chain reaction because uh you know that happens in 1860 and then uh the 32 rimfire is 1861 and the 46 rimfire is 64 and then uh then it's, you know, and then it goes on there's one in 66, 67, 68, 68, 69, 71, 71. So there's like all of a sudden, you know, this technology gets out and everybody starts making these things. Um so the, you know, the the Americans or frontiersmen because I don't are they Americans if they live in a territory? Uh, they they start showing up with these high tech weapons, and that's that's where you can have your shootouts where it's like pow 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 pow. And prior to that, um, you did have revolvers, but they actually had to load each cylinder, like you know, like a black powder, like a black powder rifle or a black powder weapon. Yep. And some of the guys would carry extra cylinders already loaded in their pocket. But you know that they were prone to getting wet, getting damp. If they got jostled, they could they could bust loose and the pieces could come out. You know, because you just you pack it down in there, but there's nothing nothing to keep it held in place other than friction. And the reason revolvers were were created because that's when they came with the percussion cap. Right. So there'd be little nipples you'd have to cover around for each each chamber with a percussion cap, but the, the smart people didn't do that until they actually put it on the weapon because otherwise you have a chance that the one sucker is going off. Right, right. And then you had, and with that, you know, when they did fire those, every time you pulled that trigger, a big cloud of black smoke would come out of that thing. So you fired two or three shots and, and now you can't see what you're shooting at anymore. So you have to wait for that to either clear or you have to move. And, and you know what, guys, we're, we're using the term Indians. I mean, it's Native American. We know that. Yeah. 
Well, if you if you really want to be, you know, Apache and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. by their actual name, but yeah, Native American. Look, this is cowboys and Indians. This is a western, so they're Indians. Yeah, right. No, no disrespect meant. We 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 talking westerns here, son. Uh, <laughs> but what was happening during this time is what was one of the major factors of what drove all this, because uh, mm-hmm. in addition to the political aspects, you were talking about how they were wanting to create multiple states in order to keep the North and the South prior uh, prior Civil War at uh, in parity. Uh, there was also all these territories that they were the government was literally throwing people into. They were like opening them up and say, "Go on, go out there and, and stake a big chunk of land and become a farmer and be your own man." And this whole culture of self determinism basically erupted during this period of time. Now, what happened to a lot of these people is they became dirt poor as a result. Because they weren't good, you know, they weren't good farmers or whatever, and they ended up going to work for other people. And some of the and some of those farms became consolidated, the larger farms. But it still made a huge mark in that the people who lived out there really believed that they were capable of anything, because yep. not only did their government tell them, but also their churches told them, and the fact that you know they they had left everything behind and to go out there and do this. So, and, and this to, to this day, we still carry that sense of frontier self-determinism as part of our culture because of that period of time. Yeah, you know, Bruce, you were just saying that, and I was just I was just realizing how much that that still permeates our society today. We're still cowboys. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The American society, no, no, the American dream is to be a cowboy. You know, we're going to go out and stake your claim, son. You can do anything. Manifest destiny. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and I think in some ways that may not be a good thing. We, yeah. we have passed that on to the rest of the world so much so that they literally come here ex- you know, expecting to be able to do that very same thing. And, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, it's not that you just it's not that, oh, well, you can't really do that now. You couldn't really do that back then either. It didn't work out for most people. Most, like Bruce said, most people want to poor or dead. Right. The, the interesting thing about the, the whole uh, Alaska gold rush is, is they took $5 million worth of gold out of the Alaska territories during that period of time. Do you know how much they spent going after that gold? Oh, God, I can't imagine. Hundreds of millions? Five million dollars. <laughs> That's zero sum. That's it was fun. zero sum. Now, of course, it wasn't zero sum for the ones who struck, who came early, right. and struck it big, and they they became real, you know, royalty in a sense on the oh. uh, west coast. But and that's also true of the early people who went out there as well. If, if you survived, if you made good deals with the with the Indians, if you were a good farmer, if you got a good piece of land, okay, you could become extremely prosperous and whole dynasties arose during that period of time. Oh yeah, but the Yuk- every- yeah the Yukon gold rushes gold rushes what made Seattle. It was the st- it was the jumping off point to head north into Alaska. Well, and think think about this. You know, you got minor forty nine er, right? Yeah, right. Right. So nineteen, so eighteen, sorry, eighteen forty nine. There, there's another Western period that's that's prior to eighteen sixty, but that's very wild west. And and that's that's the uh, California gold rush, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, so now, that that was all part of the drive to go and send people out to the West to basically take this empty land. 
<laughs> Never Which, mind all the people that were living on it. This empty land to and put it to good use. Come on, Bruce. They were a bunch of heathens. <laughs> Not necessarily. I'm looking at the um, uh, map of the U.S. territory acquisitions, and luckily it gives the dates they were taken. Okay. So you got you got the Louisiana Purchase, 1803. Right. That which includes up to Montana down to, of course, well, Louisiana. Right. Uh, British. You have the British succession of 1818. It happens after a little war we had in 1812. Right. Um, Florida, 1819. Right. That's when Spain gave up on it. Yep. Uh, see, then there, and then the next one's going to be, yeah, Texas. After, after, of course, after it was the Texas Republic of Texas. Right. So, the Lone Star State. Yep. And well, then, it, it's still its own kind of country in a way, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is. And then I have uh, I have relatives there, and trust me, the, 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 to them they are <laughs> an island. <laughs> uh, Eighteen, uh, basically, the Mormons had occupied uh, occupied their uh, Salt Lake City in eighteen forty seven. Okay. Uh, or Oregon Territory in eighteen forty six. Uh, and then the Mexico cessation of basically what was left of California, Nevada, Utah. Uh, Arizona, half of New Mexico, and uh, corner of Colorado in 1848, um, and, and California was still occupied by by Mexicans. The, all those cities, Los Angeles, San Diego, there were cities in place with people living there when they when, when the Americans showed up. <laughs> wow, that, that's amazing. Right, and they were mostly named after uh, churches that were yeah. established there. By the by, the Spain Spaniards, the yeah. Spanish Church. Yep. So, um, I think you know a lot of things come into play here, like what makes a wild what makes a wild west. So, if we're talking, you know, robbing trains, okay, let's 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 do the train thing here. Well, remember they were doing the transcontinental in 1863. By that time, we had the standard engines and so forth. So, uh, I want to say had a lot more trains before that. They had all kinds of trains going all over the place, you know. So yeah. you, you you don't have to limit to the 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 whole robbing trains to when the transcontinental occurred. That happens kind of late in the game, actually, for trains. I mean, we're talking like 1900s, 1910s, railroad tracks and and stuff like that. Um, pretty much around 1810s, 18 1820s. Uh, the trains got better and better as, as more accidents happening. And they, uh, in 1830 is when you start, uh, having, uh, mileage of, of track, uh, 29.8 miles in 1830. And the only, and then let's see, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, the, the, the Alabama, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, combined, all combined. Uh, they had 10 miles of rail. So 1830, you got some train. It's not much, but they're, you know, they're, they're, that's not Wild West robbing trains because those no. are mostly running through urban and maybe between two like urban centers or whatever. Horses right. went faster than they did. Right. The horses always went faster because a good train robber would wait till you came to a hill so the train would slow down slower than the horse. I mean, only yeah. only in television and movies do you see horses trying to run down trains on the flat. In 1840, so it's from 1830 to 1840, it jumps from a total of 40 miles of track to 2,755 miles of track, and it adds in uh, a bunch of new states. Right. Well, that that was why. It was all because of that expansion. And any place you put people, 
Okay, they're going to be yelling for the military to protect them, so they have to build forts. And if yeah. you build forts, you've got to have some means of getting money out to the soldiers to pay them. Right. And that's where you get bank. That's where you get train robs because they were robbing Joe Blow of his pocket watch, and mm-hmm. you know, little Missy of her her of her little gold ring, a wedding ring. They were after government. You know, strong boxes full of money that's going out to support oh. um, uh, the the people that have to run those large military operations that were going out there in the West. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the problems, of course, was um, the number of different gauges. This is how wide the tracks are. There were eight different gauges back in in the 1830s. Uh, I don't it, basically. It wasn't until I would say. 50s until and then the 60s when basically we had a war and basically you had to be able to move trains everywhere and without stopping the cha- you know the unload that we standardized on the standard gauge in mm. the United States and the South had a different gauge. Oh, great! It's not until you hit about 1850 where you got some real railroad, Wild West style railroads that you would be robbing trains and stuff like that. I mean, I guess you get hit as early as 1840, but you're really looking at 1850, 1860, and then. If you're talking, if you're gonna say West, you I can say this: California, Texas, you know where there's major points of civilization. When you get That's out, a lot middle, of territory when you say California and Texas. Yes, but but <laughs> yeah, compa- but when you're talking like Colorado, uh, there's a little town called called Providence. It later became Denver, uh, and then that's and then there's a little town called Pueblo. And you took a you took the uh, stagecoach because. No one, there was no need to build a rail from here to there. <laughs> Dad gummit. So that you know that that's trains. The Pony Express. Ah. It's yeah. only a period like five, six years. Yeah, it's really short. It's ridiculously yeah. short. Really? That's it? Five or six years? Yeah. That's all? Yeah. Yes. Really oh my god. And we oh, still yeah. we still know about that. Like like everybody knows what you, if you mention Pony Express, everybody knows what Because it's cool. It is it is very flamboyant. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, they have this is where they have set up every, within uh, how how long it takes a horse to get out before it dies. That's where you had the your your, ch- your chain stations at. So they were like every twenty miles, I think. Because horse it, really, it can't be more than that. No. Yeah, I mean, a horse cannot go at a full gallop. I think no more than twenty miles at best. Uh, we can probably look this up though. But yeah, that, it doesn't that is, matter. It, it was short. It was short. Ever constantly chop it off, pop it on. Yeah, and, and it was only a, it was a stopgap. Really, when it comes right down to it, it was a stopgap uh, before the, the rails got through. Uh, you know, the, that's what the main thing was with the Pony Express. And but a lot of people, a lot of in- famous cowboys, got their start in the Pony Express. Uh, I'm trying to remember, was it um, was it Wild Bill? Was he one of them? Or and I have to. Look oh no, I'm looking it up now. Pony Express. It, it doesn't matter, John. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but yeah, it, it, I'm just looking at it. Yeah, but based from 1860 to eight, I, I'll take this. Uh, oh, it's, even it's not even five years. It is literally 1860 to 1861. I don't believe that. I don't believe it. No, sorry. <laughs> All right, so anyway, it's a short period. During of time. its 18 months of operation, that's still more than a year. That's still more than a year, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. But still, <clears throat> and I'm sure there was some test runs before that. But they could deliver a message from the from the e- from the east coast to the west coast in ten days. That's not bad. 
that's not bad. All a right. lot of dead horses along the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're every 10 miles apart. <laughs> okay. Fine. So yeah. then, then comes along this thing called the telegraph, um, which, you know, is, is important for getting messages because, you know, the, uh, the Pony Express is only going to last 18 months. Samuel Morris, of course, is not the guy who invented it, but he is um, he's one of the, the most pro- prolific um, guys to develop it. And he what, he, what does it say here? He proved that signals could be transmitted by wire, but uh, his is not the first telegraph. There's some other ones, but I'm, I'm not going to go into all that. That's not important for this show. What is important is the telegraph starts spreading out uh, around 1851. That's when um, – that's actually the same year that Western Union starts. And uh, it builds its first inter, or first transcontinental, intercontinental, transcontinental telegraph in 1861, mainly along railroad right-of-ways. Um, and, and the telegraph, telegraph changes a lot of things. Be able to transmit a message – in hours instead of days. I mean, that's you gotta understand. It wasn't you, you weren't going to be sending it more than a than a few, than a few miles, right? Because it goes from station to station to station. And it's also DC, so DC current basically doesn't have doesn't travel long. But still, it's still station to station, right? But yeah, these guys were good. Right. They'd, be, they'd be listening to they'd be listening one ear and tapping out with their with their finger on the other side, and it would be, be more or less instantaneous. But you point. know what's funny? That's also when the first wiretapping espionage happens because guys would, like especially during the Civil War, guys would climb up on that line and they would they could attach a, a thing, a listener. I don't know what it is. I guess it's a, some kind of conductor. They could they could actually listen to a signal as it went through, and uh, intercept intercept communications between. So say say the South climbs up on the line. And they could listen to uh, Union soldiers passing messages back and forth. But the beauty of it is, is they could actually transmit on that line as well mm-hmm. f- from the line. You didn't need a, a special station. They they had they actually had like a, a piece of equipment where they could clamp onto the line and they could actually send their you know send their message. Send more soldiers. It's fine. It's safe. Really, bring more. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure they arrive at three p.m. And that's where you know signals and codes started becoming becoming really important. Yeah, signs and countersigns. Yep. And then there's uh, also this is the time with the when the first ah, let's call it practical um, machine guns, the Gatling. Oh yeah, yeah, right. The Gatling gun was created during was which was a development from other you know from other devices before that. Though there were other weapons that could fire multiple times, like the Nordenfelt and the a few others, uh, they looked like a, like a calliope, but it's multiple barrels that would all fire at the same time. Uh, fairly devastating. Now it is, but at the same time, the, the Gatling is still it's it's. I think they use it too much in Western. Cause it seems like, it seems like every Western they love to bring a Gatling in. I don't, well, it's way too reliable. Uh, and literally, if you if you have a full round of hundred rounds, you'd be lucky to get all hundred rounds fired with the dang, with the dang thing jamming on you. That's what I'm saying. Well, not only that, but it's it's humongous. This thing weighs a ton. They're made out of solid brass, Peter. You have to bring this thing on a cart. No, it was on a wagon or it was on a train car. One of the two. Right, right. So it's 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 not easily portable. And and you know you think you can just well yeah we'll just bring it on a wagon no problem. But I mean you know there were a lot of roads that wagons could not handle. 
you know, you couldn't just drag this thing around just anywhere you wanted to go. I mean, it, it's akin to like, I'm just going to bring a cannon with me. I mean, they, they did kick butt when, when, when you used them. Um, uh, compa- compared to anything else that was, you know, that, that would stand up against it. And I'm sure it was darn scary. Unlike the European theater, I mean, you're, you're dealing primarily with uh, places that don't have structures. So any personnel type rounds are, are the way you want to go, explosive shells and things like that. And But the Gatling gun was the most beautiful anti-personnel weapon that was ever devised, except for the reliability problem. It was just scare the pee out of anybody who heard it because they knew that this 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 wave of of, of lead was coming their way. Yeah, you I think remember, it probably had more effect for psychological than it had actual, you know, mm-hmm. tactical. And the reason why it would jam up for two reasons: one, if you if you didn't have a good speed in your crank, it would jam up mechanically that way. But the other way of jamming up was it was using black round cartridges. Which means it would jam up from all the black, from all the soot and debris in the barrels. You could actually get one to explode on you if you because because the bullet didn't clear the barrel. Hmm. You know, so there was it basically it wasn't until they came up with smokeless powder that it really became a, it became the weapon of death that, that could be it. But that by that time, more better machine guns were created by that time. Right. But, uh, but they were tremendously lighter. I mean, as, as heavy as they were, they were tremendously lighter than a cannon. But it did lead to rotary cannons. So, yeah, so some of the cannons you would see, there was, there was some cannon. The British really took the Gatling gun and said, well, it's a bit too small. So they, they made uh, three-pounders and, and two-pounder rotary cannons. Oh, okay. And they were hand-cranked. Jeez. So... Yeah. So okay. So those are technologies that happen. So we, we got you know we got the, we got the the cased round that makes an appearance around this time. We've got uh, the telegraph. We got the railroad. Can you think of any other tech? Ironclads, but they really are naval. And uh, you might see one pull into the port of San Francisco, or into 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 uh, any of the t- Texas ports. But for the most parts, they're more of a setting. They're more of a, a background than anything you're ever going to, you know, actually play on. But are there, are there any other kind of Western um, technologies that are happening this time? I mean, I think uh, what, what was it? The is this when the the cowboy saddle comes into into in, in to play? The saddle, the saddle horn, isn't that? Um, doesn't that happen around this time? It might be okay. Yeah, time to hit the font of all knowledge. The number one piece of technology that came into existence this time was the plow that could that could actually work on the prairie. They could cut through those deep roots that kept the prairies the prairies for so long. Okay, so so farming technology. Yeah, farming technology was the yep. number one technology of the day. And that's one reason why you you have so many cowboys, is because farms became something where you weren't just digging a hole in a in a ditch you know, with a stick, you know, and and trying to grow something out of it. You literally could break up some land that literally had remained fallow for thousands, tens of tens of thousands, possibly even millions of years. You know, since the last ice age, growing those thick thick roots that are on the that are known on the little house on the prairie. Yeah, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. They say uh, the modern Western saddle was developed from the Spanish saddles uh, that were brought by the Spanish conquistadors. These saddles needs the vaqueros and cowboys in Mexico, Texas, and California, uh, but it doesn't say when. 
1860s is about the time, and it's called the uh, the Mother Hubbard Saddle, huh. where the mochila, because that's the previous version, is a permanent part of the saddle. By 1866, most Texas cowboys rode Mother Hubbard saddles. And the reason why that little handle is important is because when you rope a cow and you know you, you get to rope around him, you wrap it around that saddle horn so he doesn't yank you out of the saddle. And you let the horse do the pulling. That's right. You let the horse do the pulling because a horse, <laughs> horse is not going to be pulled over by a cow too easy, whereas you'll be yanked right off that saddle very easily. The cowboy is actually that's, – that's about the time that what we think of as a cowboy is born around 1860. Yeah, though you have, like I said, it's vaqueros and so forth, which are Spanish or Mexicans. Oh, oh sure, no, no, there, there are cowboys before then. Don't don't get me wrong, there are cowboys before then. But but the cowboy we're thinking of rides up with the lasso and you know snatches the cow by the horns and pulls him down. And yeah, that's eighteen six. That's not that doesn't happen until eighteen sixties, um, because the saddle doesn't exist for him to do that. But the American cowboy is a direct descendant of the vaqueros in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the Vaquero saddle is of the 1700s. There's no horn, uh, relatively low cantle and low for- – I don't know. You have to look this up. It's, it's Western saddle, western-saddle-guide.com. Uh, check – go to that site. It will tell you all about it But you know, because we, we don't want to get into all that. Um, now, normally, you'd be worried about me going off like this in the tangent. But, you know, hey, go ahead, Peter. Well, no, no, I'm not going off on the tangent. That's what I'm saying. I'm not going off on the tangent. I gave the website. You tangent it yourself if you're that worried about it. We got that. Is there any other technology you can think of? Thanks to the Civil War, a lot of medicine, a lot of uh, medical processes are, are perfected. They can saw limbs off in less than 30 seconds. <laughs> but people still die from it. But, but they also had anesthetics, Peter. Yes. They did have anesthetics. You're right. And is this the first time that – is this when anesthetics happen, right? Yes, exactly. Chloroform. Right. All right. So that's that's really important, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they still don't have germ theory yet. Oh, no. They, they, they had it. Do they? I mean, do they know to wash their hands and stuff? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah they, they do. But, but it, it's not necessarily well practiced. Yeah. But it, certainly the information was there. Yeah. And, of course, there's this old – I'm not quite sure how accurate the myth is. But there's a story of a of a hospital that was had both sub, had, had Union soldiers in one end, it was a Union hospital, and Southern you know uh, POWs in the other end, and basically because supplies were short, they didn't give all the good stuff to the to the Southern soldiers. But their end of the hospital actually was the nicer end because okay they couldn't get they couldn't get chloroform they couldn't get all these nice little all these little doodads. But they may use a lot of folk medicine, and one thing they did was, well, let let grubs or actually um, um, uh, maggots eat the dead flesh and wounds out to clean them out. Hey, I got I got one. So so the the history on sanitizing instruments it's a little more complex. It's not you know it's not a straight line with with you know nice little divisible things where I can say, well, it all starts right here because it's it's all over the place. But it does say this. In the 1870s, Joseph Lister, you know, a certain guy that might have invented a certain product that people wash their mouth out with, uh, was instrumental in developing practical applications of germ theory of disease with respect to sanitation in medical settings and antiseptical surgical techniques. So while that may have existed in, in principle, you know, like people knew about it, people weren't really using it until about this time. Okay. 
it wasn't like implemented in, in and when was tri- was triage that was was that World War One when triage was kind of invented? I mean, triage just basically says let's separate the people we know are going to die from the people who who may have a chance of living. Maybe by the term, <sighs> but the practices existed forever. Yeah, but but like implementing it in that they would go through all of your your wounded and actually pick out because there there was a policy. I'm I'm remember reading it somewhere. There was a policy of first come first serve. It says yeah. that it may have originated during the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, uh, it was further. It was used further in World War One by the French doctors. Probably you're thinking of World War One. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's where again, that's one of the things where it becomes policy at that time. Not to say that no one did it, but you know, it became this thing that everybody did during World War One. So if uh, yeah, if you're fighting in the Civil War, you may or may not be seen when you should be. They don't have anything to help you. There's really no point to it. <laughs> right. I mean, also, let's be blunt. A lot of the weapons, uh, a black powder, you know, the bullets were larger in black uh, black power weapons. And there still were a, lot, a large number of black power weapons in use during the uh, Civil War. Sure. Yep. Only a few units actually had um, cartridge rifles, even on the Union, on the union side. John, it's like we said, the, the, the cartridge rifle doesn't make an appearance until 1860. Yep, and the, and the southern guys are busy using their squirrel rifles, their hunting rifles. I mean, there's no standardization. They didn't have these fancy schmancy new technology. Yeah, there was no standardization on their end. Oh, 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 think about standardization. Oh, if you want to talk about technology, again, this is something that may come in use for a weird Western. Submarines. Oh, yeah. yeah. At least two submarines were, were, were built and operated. The Humley and the Alligator. These are two submarines. Didn't everybody die in the in the in the Humley? Twice, twice. Okay, <laughs> good, good. Glad we got that going on. <laughs> uh, the alligator actually survived and it actually was being used down in South America when it when it was sunk uh, on purpose. Uh, I gotta say, a submarine sunk. What's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. But but the alligator sort of led to the Holland, which uh, the Holland was about nineteen ten. So. You could push it a little bit back that you know, push that a little bit, you know, submarines. So th- these are all technologies that they kind of come about and and make make the Wild West the Wild West. I mean, make it w- the genre that we know that we that we appreciate. Very few people are using swords. I mean, like we like said, Zorro he had a sword and stuff, and that's that's really pre-West, but kind of can extend to it sorta. But you know, in the eighteen sixties, you have well, you have people with sabers. I mean, so. Sword fights are pretty. Yeah, they're not. They're not out of the question. Yeah, if you can't reload your gun for like a thirty seconds to a minute, you're not firing it again. No, you need that saber. <laughs> That's why they, they they put that bayonet on the end of the rifle so you could just keep stabbing at people as if oh, they yeah. kept coming. So what kills? What kills the Wild West technology wise? I mean, I, I'm going to say the cars is is a is a really like a nail in the like a like a big nail in the coffin. Even now, and I'm talking on dude ranches and on, uh, uh, you know, things. You still see some horse use, though, out in, because the horses don't spook cattle as much as cars do. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm saying genre-wise. I'm saying to, to ruin the feel of a good way. You, you know, you, you make up, you want to play a Western campaign or you want to do an adventure with a Western. Yeah, World War One cars. Refrigerated train cars. Yeah. Oh. Because once you had those, there was no need to have a cattle drive. You just kill them where they're at and throw them into the freezer. 
Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, that's a good point, Bruce. Introduction of diesel of diesels, diesel trains. Okay, so you don't have the coal. They're not shoveling the coal into the furnace, and and they don't have to, and they don't have to stop every twenty miles because you gotta remember the water stations were every twenty miles for a lot of trains until you know because uh, they just leak steam like you wouldn't believe. It's rewater like every twenty miles. Okay. That's when we start getting getting out of the Western. Now, I'm going to, like I said before, the, the movie Last Man Standing, which takes place in 1931, which is a remake. I think it's a fistful of dollars, which is a remake of, of Yojimbo, I believe, is the movie. Of course, that's that's samurai movie. At any rate, Last Man Standing is 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 basically a crossover. That's when the Western becomes a gangster movie for the most part. But when it was a few dollars more, man, oh, oh such a good movie. Mm-hmm. That's that's the uh, Clint Eastwood, man with no name, basically. For a few dollars more. Or wasn't one of them a sequel to the other one? Yes. Fistful of Dollars and a Few Dollars More? Yes. I think there was a – wasn't there a third? No. No. I don't think so. I think it was just that but one I think it, But I think you did start in another speaking question, though. I think you started more than just two. A lot of people consider the good, the yeah. bad, the ugly to, to be the yeah. third part of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because he doesn't have a name in that either, does he? I don't think so. Yeah. And uh, and there was also the My Name is Trinity series. Took mm-hmm. place at the same time. Yeah. Same director. Oh, wait a minute. Here it is. Yeah. it's No, actually, Bruce, you're right. It is the third film in the Dollars trilogy. Yeah. Or that sort of led to another movie, which I know we're staying in the American West, but there's a movie who, who is, I would call it the uh, sort of the spiritual remake of that movie, which is the good, the bad, the weird. Oh, yeah. All right. So do we do we want to get out of straight up uh, Western genre and start heading into the weird West? And of course, just for folks who are wondering, uh, this movie is takes place in the 1930s in Mongolia. <laughs> it's a Chinese Western shot filmed by Korean South Koreans. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, wait a minute. That one's not a weird West, right? That's just a, that's a martial West or something. I don't know. Yeah. What you yeah. Call yeah. It. There's some mark. There's definitely martial arts. It was an Eastern West. <laughs> yeah. Eastern. Yeah. Eastern right. West. Or, or it's really, really far West. But Peter, before we do that, before we diverge, why don't we talk about what, uh, if you're in the West, what are the characters that you'd expect to run into mm. as part of your setting. Okay, good. That's a good call. Number one, gunslinger. That's what everybody likes. That's 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 your. Let's get him out of the way. Yep. So so what exactly is a gunslinger? I mean, he's just a mercenary. I mean, what is he? He's he's kind of like a D and D character, right? Yes, he's literally a mercenary. He's somebody that was be that was hired by somebody to basically bolster their side in some kind of a conflict. Uh, there were uh, a lot of conflicts between those those large uh, uh, land barons and uh, cattle barons uh, over uh, water rights, over land rights. Sometimes they were hired by towns against Indian incursions. I don't know if the Indians hired people from other tribes in the same manner or not, but I'm just saying is that they literally were mercenaries. Yeah, and unfortunately, based on what I can tell, Entirely fictional. What gunslingers? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Of course they were. Uh, <laughs> it, it's fine though, because I mean, we're, we're again, again, we're, this is a role playing game we're talking about. We're doing this for a role playing game, so yeah. So the gunslinger does exist because 
it's not not my worst fun in a, in a role playing game if he doesn't. But there's a clo- there's a close analogy to the gunslayer, okay, which is the bounty hunter. Yeah, right. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and, and he, they were very real. You know, he's not a gunslinger. Okay, the difference is is that he's actually going out against bad people that have been designated by the government for pay. He actually had to have a, a writ that gave him the right to kill that person before he would take action, except in self-defense. That's the optimal case. You have your bounty hunters who basically are kind of like mercenaries. So if you get somebody who's rich, like, I don't know, Hearst at the time or um, – uh, I don't, anybody who's rich at the time could hire a bounty hunter and buy off the law and then have this guy go in much like a mercenary. Uh, so he doesn't have to be the good guy. But he's not playing the role of the bounty hunter if he does that. Yeah. Well, no, he, he's wearing the, the clothes of a bounty hunter. He's, but, he's, but you're right. He's not. He's, he's basically at that point a gunslinger. Right. Yeah. And of course, the sheriff. The sheriff. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's basically the gunslinger for the people. Yeah, Marshall Dillon, I think, is probably the best example of, a sh- of the sheriff out there. Right. Or uh, Rooster Cogburn. Yeah, Rooster Cogburn. <laughs> of course, that means for where, where you have a sheriff, you have a deputy. And some of the deputies are really competent. Some of them are Barney Fife. But, you know. <laughs> Go back to the, the TV show Deadwood. And and we're I know look hey people we're, we're glossing over a lot of westerns come on if you're screaming at us well, what about young guns and what about I, I know I know there's a million westerns and we could spend all day just naming western movies the show Deadwood had really good sheriff deputy dynamic um, and the deputy was actually he was the sheriff's conscience in a lot of ways in the show the sheriff is a good man he he really is but the the criminal elements in the town. Uh, push him beyond his limits and the, the deputy is there to keep him because the deputy doesn't have to deal with this all the time you know what i mean the sheriff has to deal with everything all the time he's the boss right and when the when the bad guys push him a little too far the deputy is there to keep him from going over the edge and they, they do a really nice job of it in the show i mean it's, it's a it's a really awesome dynamic we go along with that it's he's, he's a gunfighter but he's the stranger you know the guy comes comes into town and Clint Eastwood's character from Good, Bad, the Ugly. He's the person that comes into town. He's going to clean it up. You know, no one knows where he came from. No, no one knows where he's going to go to. But he just comes into town, and does his, and it helps it out. You know, and there's various examples of that. I mean, you know, we're talking like uh, uh, James Garner and his uh, two uh, two movies, uh, "Support Your Local Gunfighter" and "Support Your Local Sheriff." Basically, that's the role he's playing. He's playing the the, the stranger who comes to town and saves it. <laughs> In both cases, against his will. Against his will, yes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they all uh, assume he's come to save the town, and <laughs> he can't convince them otherwise, so he does. Yeah. <laughs> to me, the guy who, who basically is always there in every movie, and he's he gives such a flavor to the movie, The Undertaker. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and it's funny, too, because he, he doesn't – you know, for the most part, he doesn't do a whole lot. No, he's just sort of like you, like you said, Bruce. He's just flavor. He 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 kind of punctuates everything. He he brings gravitas to every scene he's in. Yeah, right, right. Because he brings in the reality. Yeah, he is where this story is going. 
he has the exclamation point on the end of the sentence. He's like, at some point, I am going to be the end result of everything you do here. You look like a size five coffin. (laughs) (laughs) And and usually he has the counterpoint of his grave diggers. Yeah. Who are usually the complete opposite. They're no gravitas. They're, They're usually for comedy relief. Loquacious and alcoholic. So it could be said that alcoholism is a staple. <laughs> well, in that West. case, we have the showgirl, well, the hooker with the golden heart. Well, the slew girl slash yeah. whore. I wouldn't call Miss Miss Kitty that though. But she's the 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 heroine of the story. She she's the femme fatale. Well, that or or the school marm. Right, the school marm. Right, who 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 gets the guy in trouble because you know he he comes into town. He he wants to. Uh, just just have a couple beers or whatever, uh, and then her sad story comes across, and he's like, can't help but help her. And then there's the firebrand, and this is the female character. Uh, so, like, if you're uh, two movies I already mentioned, uh, James Garner has to deal with two firebrands in both movies. You know, the the, the basically the, the mayor's daughter, and she's out trying to, you know, she wears jeans, she doesn't wear dresses, she carries guns, or basically the Annie Oakley. Though Annie Oakley was was a nice girl, she, she did wear dresses. Oh, no, Calamity Jane. Calamity Jane's more like... Dude, Calamity Jane was apparently was tougher than most dudes. Yeah. Again, going to Deadwood, going to Deadwood, that Calamity Jane was awesome. Yeah. Well, so was the one in F-Troop. Okay. <laughs> and, and the girl, the, the, um, the young girl in, uh, in Rooster Cogburn. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. I think or True Grit. Well, True Grit, Rooster Cogburn. Oh, wait a minute. And there was the nun in Rooster Cogburn, uh, Catherine Hepburn's character. Oh, I can't remember her name. You guys have seen Rooster Cogburn, right? Yeah. yeah. I can't remember her name either. Right. But anyway, she she was she's a firebrand in a different way. Yep. You know, she's like a holy firebrand. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, you got you know six mules for sister uh, for sister Sarah, which which basically turns this thing up on his head a couple of times. Yep. And right. That also brings the senorita. You know, if you get, if you're playing down in New Mexico and stuff like that, you have the senoritas, and she's just there to get you in trouble. Yeah. Well, again, that that sounds like your your firebrand just with a southern accent. She she's the femme fatale. She she gets she gets the hero in trouble for no other reason than batting eyelashes. We have the gambler. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because anywhere where there's money, there's somebody there who will give you even odds that you can keep it. That's Maverick. That's again James Garner playing Maverick, or or my favorite gambler Doc Holliday from Tombstone. Probably one of the best examples of a gambler, paint your wagon. Hmm. The guy basically he's there at the very beginning, and he's and, and, and at the end when the town is destroyed, he just picks up and moves on to the next town, continuing to ply his trade. I mean, at one point he owns the entire uh, saloon casino. You know, and he just basically just sits there and just earns his money every night, you know, because there's always somebody who thinks they can take his money away from him, and they're always wrong. Thinking of the cattle baron and his henchmen. Oh, sure. Right. And uh, he's always the bad guy. He's ne- well, no, no, that's not true. No, because because in, in Young Guns, there was there was the Irish cattle baron who was the good guy. And then the other guy who was the, the uh, I guess he was the English cattle baron. Was he English? Anyway, he was the bad guy. 
Of course, because they always English guys are always bad guys, right? Of course, there's his natural enemy, the homesteader. Right, absolutely, because he's always in the way. Yeah, homesteader could also turn into a land baron as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh yeah, and then of course to protect everybody are of course the horse soldiers, basically American cavalry, in forts that you only really see in like the Northwest or in the uh, uh, by Wisconsin. The standard stockade it's, is really, I mean, you're in the middle of a freaking desert and there's a wooden stockade. I'm going, where'd you get the wood at from? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be more adobe in the middle of a desert, if anything. That brings up a, a good a good character. This is a, a a version of the Wanderer, the ex-soldier, the ex, you know, like the ex-Confederate soldier. Oh, yeah. You know, he's tough and he's sort of a gunslinger. But he's like the reluctant guns. Like, look, I, I want to buy a little house and and till a little piece of land, and I want everybody to leave me alone. And of course, he can't, you know, because in comes the femme fatale and the land baron and bounty hunters or whatever. Because whatever whatever town he pulls into, he uh, upsets the balance that's there. Right, and that makes him the lightning rod for everything that happens after that. Yeah, and that's basically the role that you and uh, that your characters. The Fringeworthy or Bureau 13 or whatever are going to be playing in each of these types of ventures. Yeah, you guys are going to be the wanderer that upsets the balance. Mm-hmm. Right? The guy that scares the guy in charge because you show up and you are a capable man and they know it. Or a woman, whatever you're playing. But but you are the capable people and they know it. So you, you become the target. And if you're Fringeworthy, you're better armed and probably armored than they are. So oh, let's let's not forget. There's one more that if, I mean, there's a ton of them. Well, there's lots more. I've got a list of about twenty more. Okay, do you want to go down them real quick? Sure. I was gonna I was gonna say, don't forget the engines. Oh yeah. Right. No, I, I didn't even include the engines. All right, you want me to do it? Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay, go you got the town drunk. Mm-hmm. You got the piano player. Yep. You got the bartender. You got the guys running the livery stable. If you have a train, you've got the station master. You have the postmaster and or telegraph operator. You have the minstrel. You got the preacher or priest and their cohort, the church lady or nun. You got the guy running the general store mm-hmm. and the blacksmith and the cooper. A little side note here. A cooper is the guy that makes barrels. And there are lots of barrels in the Old West. Right, right. Okay? He makes crates too. <laughs> right. Anything basically where you strap a piece of iron or copper or something around wood to hold it together and put stuff in. That's what a cooper does. And then, of course, we got, you already mentioned, the soldiers. Mm-hmm. So that's my list. What about the Wainwright? A wagon maker. Your wagon maker, right. Good one, John. I, I didn't think you would know that one. Normally, I would put him under the, the, the auspice of the blacksmith. Because the the real Wainwrights, so far, those guys would be in the east, making them to go west. <laughs> right, right. And this guy would be the guy repairing them. It had to be a big city to get have Wainwrights in place. Right, yeah, because because wagons are very expensive. They would import those. Or on the other side of the Rockies, like California. Wait, we forget one. So so from from Tombstone, the the, the traveling the traveling troupe, the the entertainers, the like the the the, the actors and stuff. So there's the circus. Right, mm-hmm. and there's also the Harneys. Sure, and and you're the reporter, right? 
So you got your reporters going out reporting on uh, on on gunfighters and 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 the move, Indian movements and your writers, yeah, writing their dime novels. Right, which is why we have such things as gunslingers. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> they invented them. Right, right. They had to have something to write about. Mm-hmm. And what about your vigilante, your dun, 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 your lone ranger? But he falls in. I would consider a bit of the weird west because he he really is more of a superhero than he is a uh, a true western western character. He has pretty naturally accurate shots. I mean, he can sh- he can literally shoot a fly off the top tip of your nose and not hurt your nose. Yeah. And an amazing <laughs> ability to impersonate people too. So so we're gonna call the Lone Ranger, and then I guess Zorro is gonna fit into that category. And yeah, sure. and the samurai that happens to somehow wind up in the West and ninjas. Or quite Quang Chang. Yeah. And Kwai Chang Kang, yeah, he's a, he's a superhero. Yeah. Oh, oh, the, the Chinese, the chi- the Chinese. You, you got the, the the Chinese rail builders. You've got you know the, the shopkeepers. Chinatowns in in the California. A lot of them showed up during the gold rush. A lot of them basically just ditched when they could. So mm-hmm. some of them a lot ran away from uh, basically the equivalent of of uh, press gangs when they were building the the transcontinental railroad. So you yeah. end up with small groups of Chinese scattered all over the place. Of course, there's blacks because they're either freed or they're settlers themselves. And there were black cowboys. Sure they were. Mm-hmm. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.